We are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. As Kelsey said earlier, we're in the midst of this sermon series called The Thread. So if you came today, you, you have 60 more weeks. You can't get out of it. I'm sorry. Now we're going through each book of the Bible, just preaching a chapter or two from each of them, tying the threads to Jesus and showing how God has spoken through his word, and, and it all points to Jesus. And so I don't know about you guys, but I have really been enjoying reading my Bible. I've really been enjoying reading sections and parts of scripture that maybe aren't as common as other ones, and it's amazing how you see God opposing the proud, but give grace, giving grace to the humble all throughout the story, all throughout the story. So now that everybody's back in your seats, we can pray. And I was just filling time, so don't you guys feel like you got extra just there? Like, you can go home full today. Um, rather than just diving into prayer, I just want to give you a couple, a few seconds. Why don't you pray? Would you ask God to speak to you today? And then I'll pray for all of us. Lord God, we all come here this morning in different spots. Some of us are on top of the world. Some of us are barely hanging on and clinging to the ledge in every area in between. And so God, I won't make any, there's no pretension on my part that, that says I can speak to every, every one of the people here, but Holy Spirit, you can. And so would you do that through me or in spite of me? Would you open up the truth and the beauty of your word? And even more than that, show us the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, have your way in us. Speak through or in spite of me, but speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I have a really weighty, important question for everybody to start out with. I'm going to ask you to be a little vulnerable, but how many of you have ever bought something from an infomercial? Or maybe, maybe you know somebody who bought something from an infomercial. We're going to do that. Pastor, I have a friend. Sure you do. <laughs> infomercials, whoever designed them knows something about human psychology, right? I mean, the sham wow is a towel. The shake weight is ridiculous. <laughs> the total gym is not the only thing Chuck Norris uses. The magic bullet may not actually change your life. The Snuggie, I'm going to leave that there for the Snuggie lovers among us. The George Foreman grill actually did really well during my college years. Copper pans that nothing sticks to wear out actually rather quickly. Isn't it interesting with infomercials, something that is mildly intriguing within a matter of about 10 minutes, if, if you stay that long, becomes something you can't possibly live without. At least not miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime deal if I act now. Something that should cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars, I can get for $19.95. And if I call in the next 30 minutes, I can get two of them. I don't want to lose money on this deal, right? But for anyone who has ever bought something from an infomercial, the reality of the product is often more disappointing than what you think you're buying. Am I right? Or maybe you love that Snuggie and you're just going to cling to it and say, Pastor Kyle, 
fully satisfied customer. Sometimes getting what you ask for or what you think you really want is the worst thing that can possibly happen to you. This is what the people of God are actually going to learn in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Here's a brief introduction video that introduces us to the whole of 1 Samuel, and then we'll be in chapter 8 together. The first book of Samuel was most likely written by the prophet Samuel, recounting the 100 years between 1100 and 1000 BC, during the age of Israel's kings. At the end of Israel's chaotic period of judges, God appoints the prophet Samuel to lead the nation back to righteous living. Samuel marks the final judge over Israel. Despite God's continued faithfulness, Israel begs for a king to lead them like the surrounding nations. Though their motives are wrong, God grants their desire by anointing the warrior Saul as king. Saul is initially a faithful king, leading Israel to military success. But in his pride, he blatantly disobeys God. In response to his actions, Saul is told by Samuel that he will be replaced as king. During Saul's decline, God has been raising up a young, insignificant shepherd named David. Through his humble faith, David leads Israel in victory against the invading Philistines and takes the position of a popular general under King Saul. In jealousy, King Saul hunts David in an attempt to kill him but God protects David in the wilderness. In the first book of Samuel, we see Saul's pride and disobedience lead to his downfall, while David's humility and trust in God deliver both him and the nation of Israel. Does anybody know why we have the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel rather than just the book of Samuel? It's a really technical thing. Unlike 1st and 2nd Corinthians, for instance, which is two different letters, or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which is two different letters written on different occasions to the same people, the book of Samuel was actually originally one book. And the reason it is two is because when they were translating it from Hebrew into Greek in what's known as the Septuagint, they thought the scroll would be too long. That's the technical reason right there. And so we have the book of Samuel, which covers the life of, of primarily three men, Samuel, Saul, and David. And it, it, it deals with the period of time that transitions Israel from a, a group of people under judges and tribal leaders with God as their king to a, a nation that's now united under a monarch, uh, under a king named Saul and then David. In 1 Samuel chapter 8... The people of God ask God for something, and it's a lot like an infomercial. They ask God for a king. Let's read together. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
According to all the deeds that I have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to these officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He shall take a tenth of them or a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, with that as a warning, would you continue to proceed? They do. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. So things up until this point have been actually pretty good under Samuel. He's brought order to the nation. He has restored godliness in part. In many ways, he's acted not just as a faithful judge for the people. He's also acted as a prophet to the people, speaking the words of God on God's behalf, seeking God for them and telling them what God has said. But if the people have learned anything over the last 400 years during the period of the judges is that when the judge dies, things go crazy. When the judge dies, things go back and they get really bad again. If you remember from two weeks ago, there was a cycle to each of the judges that would happen over and over and over again. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. That the people would fall, they would rebel against God and they would fall into oppression by a foreign enemy. They would then cry out to God for deliverance. They would cry out in repentance and God would raise up a judge. And through that judge, God would provide deliverance for his people. And it was followed then by a time of peace as long as that judge was alive. But when the judge died, they would fall away from God again and the whole cycle would repeat itself. Now, I'm sure Samuel is familiar with this. Most people think that he actually wrote the book of Judges. And so Samuel tries to do something about it as he gets old. He doesn't want to see the same cycle happen again. So he appoints his two sons, Joel and Abijah, to be judges when he's gone. Now, you got to remember something. This is not something that has happened before. A judge didn't appoint a successor to his judgeship or whatever it was up until this point. And it wasn't very long as his two sons are down in Beersheba on the southern end of the country where they say, yeah, this isn't going to work. See, Joel and Abijah are wicked men. We're told that they don't walk in the ways of their father Samuel, which was the ways of the Lord in peace and in justice and in righteousness. 
but rather that they're greedy and that they pervert justice and accept bribes, which may not seem like the worst of all sins until you live in a system of total corruption where anybody with money can buy and get whatever they want and oppress whoever they want. And so the elders of Israel gather and they come up with this proposal to Samuel. They said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel, it's time. This hasn't been working. That isn't working. It's time for us to have a king like the other nations so that we can at least secure who we are, so that we can secure our borders and we don't keep falling into this cycle of oppression and deliverance. Now, what does Samuel think of the idea? He hates it. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. It's actually a really softening version of what Samuel said. It's, it was literally evil in his eyes, this proposal. And so Samuel prays to the Lord. He seeks God on their behalf. And my guess is Samuel is, is thinking, God is going to shoot this proposal down like crazy. Samuel takes this rejection personally. It's a rejection of him and his sons. So he prays and seeks the Lord in prayer, and God actually tells him, I think, what he doesn't expect. God says, give them what they want. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Samuel, you're just getting a taste of what I have experienced for the last 400 years. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Give them what they're asked for, because they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, even though you feel just a little bit of what I've felt. But in giving it to them, at least warn them ahead of time of what they can expect of a king who rules over them. Now, this is not the first time the idea of a king has popped up in the Bible story. Did you know that? This is not out of the blue. In fact, if you remember two weeks ago, during the story of Gideon, the people went to Gideon and essentially wanted to make him and his sons after him a king, to which Gideon responds, no, God is king over you. I can't be. But then the rest of his life, he kind of acted like a king anyway. And then his next son, Abimelech, which means my father is king, killed his 70 brothers and sought to rule as a king. And that went really, really, really badly for the people. And so it's been tried in some way, but failed utterly. But even if you look in the scriptures, you see that God intended for them to have a king. Why would you say that, Pastor Kyle? It seems like God is not in favor of this idea at all, and that he's just going to give them what they desire, knowing it's going to be bad for them. Well, actually, if you go back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, Jacob is prophesying and blessing his sons. And this is what he says to his son Judah in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. It kind of sounds like Judah, and from Judah's line is going to come some kings, doesn't it? That the rule that the kingship actually is not going to go to Reuben or Levi or some of the other ones that we would expect, but actually Judah is going to be the one that God's promised deliverer will come through. In Deuteronomy 17, and here's the real kicker, 
Through Moses, 400 years earlier, God actually gives instructions to the king on what he's supposed to do when he comes into his throne. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like they're not asking for something unreasonable. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So it needs to be a Jewish person. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. We see that happen in the biblical story. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So what's one of the first things that the king is supposed to do upon taking the throne? Take out a co- a, the book of the law, which is the first five books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and he is to handwrite his own copy, writing it all down. Do you think that would be a painstaking labor? Yeah, do you think you would internalize it a little bit if you're the one writing it? Yeah. That's the first thing that he was to do. And not only that, he was to keep it by him at all times and continually read it so that he would rule and reign in line with what God's law was. So that he would reign righteously or justly on behalf of the people. So here we have God predicting 400 years ago that there will be a king we, we got from even further before, 400 years before that, that it's going to come from the line of Judah. And isn't it interesting that the instructions that God gives in Deuteronomy 17 is kind of the exact opposite of what Samuel says they will actually do in verses 11 to 18 in 1 Samuel 8. Isn't it interesting? Verses 11 and 12, the king will make your sons serve him, either in the army or in the fields or making weapons of war. The king will take your daughters to serve him in making perfume and food and baked goods. The king will take the best of your fields and lands and give them to his friends and servants. Verse 14, the king will take the best of what you produce from your fields. He will take your servants and your livestock. And when you say, wait a second, God, the king is oppressing us. you got to stop him. And when you cry out to the Lord on that day, because the king you have chosen for yourself, I will not answer you. So here's my question. Probably one that's rolling around in your mind by now. If God had already planned out for them to have a king, why is he then so upset when they ask Samuel for one? Is God being unfair? unreasonable here? Why is he upset that they want a king? And the key to understand why God is upset is the phrase that appears twice. It's this, that we may be like the nations. 
that we may be like everybody else. The phrase shows just how wrong they are as the people of God. Why? Because the very calling that God had placed on the lives of his people is that they would be different. They would be distinct from the nations. They would be holy and set apart, and they would be a people that reflects to the nations what God is like. As they obeyed his law, they would reflect his character and his sense of justice and rightness with the world. And they were actually to be a blessing to the surrounding nations by revealing to the nations what God is like. But here you have the people of God saying, but we want to be like them. Do you see how that's a very, at the core, it's an abdication of their calling of what God had called them to do. They want to fit in. And so God hands them over to their desires, and he gives them what they want. They get what they want and realize it isn't actually at all what they wanted. Sometimes the judgment of God is seen most clearly in giving us over to what we really desire, in saying yes to our prayer requests. It's only in this moment where we realize that what we thought would bring us greater freedom and joy and peace is the very thing that enslaves us and leaves us feeling empty and alone. Those who dream about how fame and fortune are the only thing that can satisfy the deep hunger in their soul to make them happy and to feel significant often become rich and famous and realize that they are just as alone and insecure as they were when they started. Only more so now because they don't have false hope that that will actually satisfy The single person who believes that they will finally be happy when they meet the one to complete them gets married and realizes pretty quickly that they still feel alone and unknown. And pick your idol. Go down the list. It does the exact same thing in our heart. We think, this is the key to my happiness. This is the key to my peace. This is the key to my safety and security. This is the key to knowing that I've actually made something of my life. And when we get it, what happens? It's empty. It's hollow. It doesn't actually deliver on what it promises. It's a counterfeit. That's what idols are. See, in Romans chapter 1, One of the results of denying the existence of God so that we can pursue something else as a God, we can worship and serve it rather than the creator, is that God sometimes hands us over to our broken desires. He gives us what we want, and we find it more hollow than we can ever imagine. In 1 Samuel 9, the next chapter, Samuel anoints Saul as king. Saul from the tribe of Benjamin And while he begins his reign with so much promise, his rule and his reign bring exactly the things that Samuel warned the people about. In fact, the history of Israel can be summarized in many ways by looking at the lives of their kings. If there was a good and a godly king, then things went well for the people. They often experienced a time of blessing and prosperity. But if the king was ungodly and ignored the law and the desires of the Lord, then the people often would follow his lead and do much the same, and they would experience the curses of turning from God. If you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you sadly see this pattern play out over and over and over again. And like circling the drain, it often gets worse and worse and worse until 
ultimately Israel looks no different than any of the other people. They look exactly like the nations around them, and so God brings down judgment to vindicate the holiness of his name, to show the surrounding nations, I'm not actually like that. I am righteous and holy and right. Now, it's easy for us from a distant to read about the failure of the people of God in the Old Testament, isn't it? To look at Israel and be like, idiots. Why don't they learn? I mean, they did it before and it didn't work, and then they did it again and it didn't work, and then they did it again and it didn't work, and think, glad I'm not like that. <laughs> and often in a moment of clarity, we realize we're the same, aren't we? Romans chapter 12, after Paul spends 11 chapters unpacking the good news of the gospel and all of its glory and splendor and beauty, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. There's a life that you're to live in light of what I've just proclaimed to you. In view, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So worship is no longer centered on the temple and the sacrifice because those things were fulfilled in Jesus. Now the sacrifice we offer is our own lives every day, dying to our own desires and, and will and submitting them to him, offering our lives as a sacrifice to the Lord, and that is our spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we see that as Jesus' followers, we are called out to be distinct as well, are we not? I love how the New Living Translation translates verse 2. It says this, don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will is for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. The people of Israel were called to be a holy people, set apart to show the surrounding nations what God was like, and they utterly failed. They looked just like the nations that they were to bless, and so God's judgment fell. Similarly, we, as God's New Testament people, are called to be distinct as well, different, holy. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus, on the last night that he was with his disciples, said, they will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. You see, the fact remains, we as God's people are to show the world that does not know God what God is like, who he is, his character. The world is supposed to see how we love one another and conclude something true about the gospel that only the gospel can produce. 
They are to see how we love to do good and to bless others and conclude something about the goodness of our God. So real quick, personally, what do you think people would conclude about your God by observing your life? And then corporately, What do you think people would conclude about our God if they observed our community for a year or so? What would they conclude that we really value, that we desire more than anything else? Who do we really care about? I believe that it was God's intention to establish the kingship among his people. His people just jumped the gun. And they jumped it for all of the wrong reasons so that they would be just like the other nations. He had promised them a king that would come from the tribe of Judah. He told the king what he was to do, how he was to rule and reign in light of what God has said. And so God gives them Saul. (laughs) When the people jump the gun and reject God as king over them and want to be like the surrounding nations, I think the Lord gave them a king that would reflect those values. See, Saul was tall and handsome and looked every bit the part of a king. And even though he began good, we see what was truly in his heart, that he was proud, that he didn't actually want to obey the Lord. And so God rejects him and chooses David instead. You can read the story in 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 15 where Saul does not obey the Lord. And David, now coming from the tribe of Judah like it was promised, he becomes the gold standard, as it were, to which all of the other kings of Israel and Judah would be judged. But even David falls short of what a godly true king should be, right? See, while he united the 12 tribes into one people, establishing a capital city in Jerusalem, and while he establishes the worship of God in a more permanent way in Jerusalem and comprises some of the most beautiful songs and poems in the book of Psalms, worship songs and worship prayers in the book of Psalms, his life is still filled with moral failure and falling short. Adultery, murder, absentee parenting, In many ways, he too does exactly what Samuel predicted the king would do in verses 11 to 18. Now next week, we are going to look ahead to a a story, a key turning point in David's life in 2 Samuel 7 when God makes a covenant with him. But as we read through the story of Saul and David and Solomon and the rest of the kings, it should produce a longing in all of us. God, Would you send a real king to fix the problems? God, would you send a king that will not be flawed and fail constantly, but will rule and reign in righteousness righteousness and will fix the mess that is this world? See, all of us deep down long for a king to make things right, don't we? We even see this a little bit in our own presidential elections. Often the person who gets voted in as the one who can best appeal to this idea, if you choose me, I'll make all the problems go away. I'll fix this country. I'll restore this country. I'll do it. And and it's both sides of the aisles that are making these promises. I'm not being overly political here. But they tap into something deep inside of us. We just want someone to fix it, to make it right, for the world to not stink anymore, 
for, for things to not be so broken all the time. <laughs> Amen. See, we all have that deep longing, don't we? But here's the thing. David, as good as he was, was but a mere echo of the true king that was to come, that would come from his line, a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in all the places where David and Solomon and Saul and all of the rest of the kings failed, this king succeeded. He brought the rule and the reign of God. He established justice, and we killed him. We rejected it. We couldn't handle it. But even in his death, you know what he did? He took the punishment and the justice that we deserved, and he bore it himself. And that through faith in his name, by trusting in this king, we not only come under his rule and his reign, but all of the things that he accomplished through his righteous life becomes ours by faith. And all of the horrible things that we have done and experienced are placed on him, and he brings it to the grave and rises in victory over it. If you haven't been here for very long, we call that good news, really good news that makes us a people of hope because we have a king and one day he will set all wrongs right. And here's the thing, in part we get to taste that now. In part, we get to experience the good life, living under the rule and the reign of King Jesus, life the way that God intended us to live it. But it's just a glimpse and it's just a taste. We feel the brokenness of the world all around us. And it's not just. It's not righteous. You know what else? Though we taste and experience the goodness of this new reign and rule, we feel deeply the brokenness that still is within us, don't we? That we're not as we should be. That we're not as we long to be. And so our hope is not in ourselves, but in this king to return and to make all things new. See, the failure of Saul, the success and the failure of David, they merely point ahead to a true king that is the one who our heart desires the most. And it's in him that we worship, and in him we place our faith and our trust. For our purposes today, I want to close with three questions that I think come from the essence of this passage. First, in our heart of hearts, do we really want to reflect God's character? Or is what makes us happy the same thing that satisfies the world? See, as the people of God, do we just do everything that the world does but slap a Jesus sticker on it thinking he's going to be pleased? Or is our entire life about him, the way we spend our money, what we pursue, the type of entertainment that we enjoy, is it the same as the world, sanctified with a Jesus sticker? Or is it truly different because we serve a different king? See, the gospel is news about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection that we need to believe to be true. But it's more than just that. It's also good news that Jesus is king, that he rules and he reigns, and that we find life joyfully under his rule and reign. Meaning he's calling the shots, and that's a good thing. It's the way to truly live. 
But it's also the good news of a power that we encounter as we experience relationship with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what separates us in the New Testament from the failure of the Old Testament is that God pours out his Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives, to empower us to live in a different way. We're not destined to futility anymore, but rather a transformation has taken place in the core of our being so that not only our desires have changed, but there is a new power at work within us so that we can actually give echoes of what is to come. This is where the words declare, display, and delight come from that you hear every single week as you are sent to declare the truth of the gospel that you must believe and declare as you are to display the countercultural life lived under the rule and the reign of King Jesus and you are to delight in encountering the risen Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, you get to commune with God. And so you are sent to declare and display and delight in this good news of the gospel. So as the people of God, we are called to reflect the character of God to the surrounding world, and we must ask, how are we doing? Second, as you reflect on the truth that sometimes God's judgment is most clearly seen by him giving you what you ask for, does that in any way cause you to pray differently, more humbly? See, when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. It's not false piety, but the hard-learned truth that that's actually what we want. When we say, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done, that is genuine humility that means sometimes I ask for the wrong things, and I don't want you to give me the wrong things, even though I deeply want them. I've learned enough to trust you that when you say no, sometimes that's the best answer I could possibly get. And when you say yes, then you are a good, good father. Can you imagine the sheer terror if God said yes to every one of the prayer requests you've uttered in your life? You would probably not be married to the person you are. You would probably not be here. See, we're often playing checkers and God is playing chess, isn't he? See, when we pray, your will be done, it's not that we can't ask him for things. He's a good father. He says, freely ask, and it'll be given to you. It's just simply the humble acknowledgement that sometimes I don't even know what to ask for. Or sometimes when you say, no, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. You've earned that. Now, sometimes what, what happens, can I just be real with you guys? Sometimes what happens is that we try to justify every one of his no's with what the yes that makes up for his no is. You ever find yourself playing that game? Oh, God didn't heal that person, but that was so that he could do this. They died of cancer, but someone came to know Jesus at their funeral. Can I just say, don't do that, because it's not that simple. And if you do that, you're going to drive yourself nuts. And sometimes, whatever God is doing isn't going to make sense. It just doesn't. We live in a broken world where things do not happen the way that they often should, but God one day will redeem it. And often we don't have the perspective to see how all of those answers to prayer fit together until that day. So can I just set you free from having to do that? I say that as one who has struggled with that. God, this doesn't make any sense, and so you, got, you better make it make sense. And then we play all kinds of mental gymnastics to justify 
But we don't actually have to justify. We simply are invited to trust because God is good. And what more must he do to show that? He gave his one and only son so that we might, be, might live in him. Finally, what are we displaying about the God that we serve to our city? I want you to think about this personally, and then I want us to think about this corporately. Is there something about your life that on the outside it's crazy, but if you know Jesus, it's not crazy at all? One of the things that we did when, when the very first core team of Rock Hill was started 15 years ago is someone said, you know, I want to be part of a church where like crazy things are seen as normal things because we know Jesus. So things like, why would you do foster care and invite that teenage kid into your house and adopt them? Why would you give thousands of dollars away when you could buy this? Or you could have a second home? Or you could have this? Why are you doing that? Why would you spend your time that way when, when really you could fill it up with this and this and this? See, there should be something kingdom of God-esque about our lives that reflect more the kingdom of God than they do the American dream. And I'm not saying that every part of the American dream is wrong. I'm just saying it's not fully shaped by the kingdom of God. And sometimes God is going to call us to do things as individuals that are crazy, unless you know him. And then they're not crazy at all, because we can't outgive him, because our lives aren't about us anyway. They're about making much of him, and that in living that way, I'm actually pursuing my greatest joy. And is there something about us as a people, that the city of Duluth looks in and says, you know, I'm not sure I believe what those folks believe, but, but man, there's something different there. The way that they live, the things that they care about, the citizens that they are, where the people of Superior are like, I'm not sure I fully get them, but man, I want what they have. One of my favorite stories of conversion happens in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer. It's most likely an ex- Roman soldier, because that's who got the blue, good-paying blue-collar jobs. And in the middle of the night when there's an earthquake and all of the prisoners could have escaped, he's about to commit suicide, taking his own life because it was the only way to preserve his honor. And Paul and Silas from, the, from, the, from inside the prison walls say, don't do it, we are all here. And in that moment, this guy who probably didn't treat them very kindly a few hours ago, falls at their feet and he says, I want what you guys have. And they preach the gospel to him and he believes. There should be something about our lives that is different that should demand a gospel explanation. There should be something about our lives together corporately that reflect the character of the God that we serve more than the culture that we inhabit. And I just want to say, guys, our city needs that. It's really easy right now to rag on Christianity and to point out all of the warts and blemishes, and trust me, there are plenty. But when our lives begin to line up with the good news that we preach, there's far, I don't know if there's a more compelling thing in the world when the church actually lines up like that. It's beautiful, it's compelling. It's what our city needs. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And God, we don't want to be like everybody else. We want to be your people, experiencing your joy through countercultural living. 
God, we repent that sometimes we just try to do whatever the world does and slap a Jesus sticker on it. When in reality, because in reality, your kingdom calls us to something higher and better and deeper. And it's hard, but it's good. And so, Lord, would you make us a people that reflect your character? Would you make us a people whose lives and interactions with one another demands a gospel explanation? Make us, God, a supernatural people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.